1: My first guest for the morning has joined me in the studio, a man who joins us once a month to talk comic books in a segment we call "Drawn Out." Bernard Callio, good morning, Richard Watts. Happy New Year to you. It's well, good to. It's
2: old you. year, middle aged year. Well, so it's a, a only juvenile year. March, March, so it's
1: it's kind sort of a it's toddler. G- getting on year. Yeah. <laughs> but. If we uh, think about it as the Chinese New Year, that was quite It's recent. very
2: new. Yeah. yeah it's a, okay. Happy very new Chinese Year mm, to you.
1: Yes. Well, happy comic book time mm-hmm. because it's nice to, to, as the show has been underway, I think my first show was the end of January. So, it's slowly been dropping regular segments back in. Sure, by sure. Bit. So, uh, good to have you
2: back. Yeah. It's good to be dropped.
1: In. <laughs> You're dropped,
2: bird. <Bert>. Yeah. <laughs> um, Uh, uh, So, yes, let's talk comics um, uh, again, and uh, I'd like to start over in that strange, uh, faraway country, um, the United States of America, uh, and talk about a couple of... uh, the comics um projects i suppose that are going well the first one actually is really uh, just to, to to keep all of us who have even a raised eyebrow towards the the person who dresses up in skin tight lycra and bu- jumps around fighting crime that is to say the superhero um just to let you know that uh, marvel these days you know home of spider-man home of thor um uh, and the fantastic four uh, have been doing going for a few years now with their uh, digital releasing of of comics and now they have something called marvel unlimited <laughs> in in a typical typically marvel understated uh, yeah, fashion uh, self-effacing uh, <laughs> i wonder if it was named by stanley himself um but this this is this has been a uh, um a sort of a bit it looks like it's been going i think for almost Ten years now, but but this most recent iteration of Marvel's uh, digital comic platform, uh, it seems to have sort of finally to have uh, ironed some of the bugs, and maybe they got Spider-Man onto that. But uh, ironed some of the bugs out of the (laughs) out of the system. Um,
1: I just shot (laughs) Bernie a scathing
2: look at that bad joke. (laughs) Um, Totally unplanned, folks. Please have have mercy. Um, And. as, so, yeah, the reviews, I suppose, are, that I'm looking at online because, you know, for me, paper, paper, paper is still the king. Uh, it, it seems like it's finally working for Android, for example. <laughs> but, you know, there's a gazillion comics that you can read on it. And, and a buddy at, uh, at work, at my other worker, um, the museum, uh, Eddie, a great reader of comics, as was just said recently, yeah, yeah, I finally moved over from getting that whack of single issues every, every, every week, every month, um to Marvel Unlimited for my Marvel books and then if I really love a book then I'll pick it up in the trade uh, paperback collection the, the graphic novel you know 100 200 page collection
1: in the end but it's a which good is inevitable now that you know they things will be released in a, in a anthologized form uh,
2: Absolutely yeah. absolutely so just a, i suppose I'm I'm bringing it up just as a a comment on the interesting way that serialization uh, is changing serialization so so important for comics is is changing in the at, same
1: way that our TV viewing habits have changed Precisely so what and Marvel essentially are doing now Spotify
2: is- they're, they're Netflixing. They're, yeah, allowing
1: people to binge read comics. Yeah, for example. exactly. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So that's that's an interesting thing. More interesting uh, is that um, for the anti-Trump marches that recently happened, um, uh, there's a there was an, a comics anthology that came out called. <clears throat> resist exclamation mark uh and this was put together by francoise mouly who is the wife of arch spiegelman Art spiegelman who gave us mouse that great graphic novel uh about the holocaust um francoise mouly and her daughter Nadja spiegelman put together this anthology called resist and it was a, a tabloid newspaper sized anthology and they printed um that, what they what happened after the election of Trump? They made an open call for submissions to this anthology, Resist. And what they found, what they printed rather in the end, uh, was a book. Almost totally full of women's voices, women's ca- cartooning voices. Uh, so they edited for that um, bias uh, in in the in the um, in the voice of the book overall, and then they gave out mm, uh, thirty thousand, I think, of these. They th- they gave them away for free at the marches. Um, and so, what I think resist represent. And there's a good article on uh, Vice, uh, Vice magazines. Website interviewing uh, Françoise Mouly and her daughter Naja Spiegelman, and about their editing process, about the call for submissions, about the voice uh, that the comic format gave. So, in in this book, in this Resist, which I've not seen, I don't even know if there's a copy in the country, uh, uh, is that they what they they got great. uh, professional cartoonist from Alison Bechdel who gave us the um, Fun Home home, that amazing graphic novel um, and the Bechdel Test and the Bechdel Test please Uh, uh, and Roz Chast from the New Yorker uh, all the way through to you know a 13 year old Schoolgirls doing their first comic ever, so there was that enormous variation of experience in terms of cartooning, um, but this full throated sort of roar certainly from the from the uh, uh, comics that i 've been able, and cartoons that i 've been able to find find online so that 's a, that's a really uh, a wonderful uh, political use of
1: comics it uh, yeah. reminds me of, for example, to, to go back into the dim dark. Pages of history. The fact that it's called "Resist!" Exclamation mark yes. r- r- immediately made me think of "Arg!" Yes. Uh, exclamation yes. Mark, yes. Artists against rampant government homophobia, yes. which was uh, an anthology comic responding to the the Thatcher government in the in the late eighties, early nineties. Clause 90s. twenty-eight. Clause twenty-eight which yeah. then became Section twenty-eight when it was passed into law. The, the bill a- attempting to ban the promotion of homosexuality. Mm. Uh, so yeah, artists uniting their rage and focusing it yes. uh, in such a way that it becomes uh, entertainment, agitprop uh, yeah. and an important political voice. Yes,
2: yes, yes. So it's a, 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 ch- you know, a channel. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's um, that's resisted. Look, if I ever get a copy, I'll come in, uh, p- people out there in, in Radio Land, I'll, I'll bring in a copy and show you. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to. Seeing you. <laughs> um, on the local front, um, we uh, there's a there's a recent um, uh, project uh, called the Banksia Project, which has been a spearhead uh, uh, a project. Uh, mounted by a woman, Alicia Jade, who's a great uh, um, woman comic book maker from Brisbane, I think. Uh, and she runs the, uh, the website Women in Oz So that's all one word, Women in Oz And the Banksia Project is a really interesting project that she has started up in association with Supernova, the pop culture expo, um, sort of a pop culture sh- show that travels around the country and you know you can meet your voice actors from i don't know dragon ball whoever (laughs) bernard chose his age um uh, but Alicia has started up this the Bankship project, which is a, a mentoring project for um, cartoonists uh, um, uh, who identify themselves as, as as marginal in some way to the to the to the um, mainstream voice. So it's just closed for this year, uh, but I did want to bring it to our listeners' attention because I think it's a it's another great um, initiative by. By Australian cartoonists, and and you know, in this case, supported by uh, Supernova, in terms of, I suppose, like Resist, really giving a, a channel and a place for the voice that comics specifically can give—that blend of of pictures and, and and words, which I think is a particular texture, a particular tone, uh, and an, and. An, uh, and in a, an important space that it opens up. So I just wanted to, yeah, let people know about that. And just to reiterate, of course, Alicia's Women in OzComics.com. And that's... Oz, Aus, US. not
1: Oz. In case you were uh, uh, looking it up. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that's a, that's a, a wonderful thing. Nice well, and we have got time yeah to another go. couple. Of yeah, minutes. yeah, okay, great. And just uh, this is a book that just uh, I got just recently. So we, uh, Richard and I were talking a little e- earlier about art and trauma. Uh, that was off, off air, air. In case you yeah, thinking, yeah, yeah, don't, don't, I, I don't. didn't hear that conversation, <laughs> you have to go back into our minds for that. But this is a book called Naming Monsters by a British cartoonist Hannah Eaton. Is it Eaton? Yep. E-A-T-O-N. Um, and I picked it up because I'm getting more and more interested in this area, which is getting some uh, traction around it, I suppose is the word, um, uh, a graphic medicine and people using comics really as a as a means of digging into uh, problematic stuff in their lives or a condition that they might live with. Um, and uh, so, yes, I just... This one sounded really interesting. And Naming Monsters is uh, a, a, a fictional story. One imagines, I, 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 well, from her back it's uh, autobiographically slanted. Um, but what is interesting is that the main character is a cryptozoologist. Uh, so that means they go around and they try and find mythical creatures. Uh, and what we have is a story of a young woman. I guess she's about 20 years old in her sort of very uh, everyday life in uh, um, uh, a british British town, interleaved with her c- accounts, not discoveries but accounts of various you know the kappa the Japanese kappa uh, the the bogart, the uh, uh, so the incubus the incubus you know and these charac- and these uh, uh, cryptozoological creatures, these mythical creatures that she 's discussing in in these sort of sections throughout the book, of course make their way into her otherwise sort of kitchen sink, going out with a friend, getting stoned on the golf course sort of, sort of life. So it's, I, I was very attracted by – attracted is the wrong word. I was very struck by this book, but not, not, me, not only because um, of her the – the, the movement of style that she does from the everyday world, which is a penciled way, and then into an inked, almost etched – Uh, um, voice for the...
1: the, Even just flipping through it, there's a real obvious visual striking difference between as you say, the the pencil sketched every day, which is still detailed but uh, nonetheless you can see that it's drawn in pencil and then a couple of pages later, uh, there's the black dog for example which really does very deeply, heavily Mm Inked, inked and etched, and yes. so much more solid, drawn, mm. uh, emphasised lines. Which is, you know, of course, a beautiful thing that she's
2: playing with there. That the that everyday life the is a lighter
1: per- is, and almost um, not peripheral, but no, yeah. yeah, that switch from the everyday into the darkness of imagination. Mm. And,
2: yeah. Mm. So I just think this is a remarkable achievement. This book, and and and. Again, it gets pulled into uh, into this sort of area that's becoming known as graphic graphic medicine.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so, Naming Monsters by Hannah Eaton, uh, which amongst other things is recommended by Ian Rankin, the the crime novelist, and <laughs> Alison Beshton, who we were
2: mentioning earlier. I wonder if they've ever been pulled together on the cover of a book. <laughs> <before>. <laughs> I doubt it. So that'll be one to keep
1: an eye out for yes. in good independent bookstores. Abs- absolutely. Okay, Bernard Callio, it's been a pleasure catching up with you for our first drawn out segment of the month. Let's keep drawing out. We will. We'll catch you in a month's time. See you then. Bye. Something else I'm intrigued about is Political Acts, Pioneers of Performance Art in Southeast Asia, a free exhibition on now at Art Centre Melbourne as part of Asia Topa, the uh, Triennial of Asian Pacific Art, uh, which uh, is a huge project spanning four months. So it's it's a complex festival to get your head around in some ways. But uh, joining us to talk to us about the exhibition itself, curator Stephen Tonkin. Stephen, thanks for coming in
3: not a uh, real pleasure
1: so i'm curious to know the challenge of an exhibition which is documenting performance art is an intriguing one performance art is as its name suggests is live work Uh, so presenting the aftermath of that work in an exhibition must have been an interesting challenge
3: it's a great conundrum in a funny way the difference between what is expected its live art which is how performance art really started out back in the 70s which it was a an art form which was had a small audience where artists created new work for Uh, what would be a dedicated audience to come and see, whereas now there's been a great sort of transition, um, particularly, I think, to do with the global contemporary art scene where the mediation or the reproduction or the recording um, has gained a life of its own and is really implicit in the whole performance art uh, project at the moment.
1: When did you first become interested in performance art as a medium, as an art form?
3: Well, because I work for Art Centre Melbourne, um, my remit as a curator is to really look at the crossover between the visual and the performing arts. So I've looked at a number of things, and uh, whether it's music and art, or whether it's uh, aspects of performance in contemporary Australian art, and so that set up a framework where when Asia Topa um, was proposed, it was allowed us to expand that parameter into the Southeast Asian region. So it's something that we're interested in um, and I think it fits well within our organisation.
1: Yeah. Now, I understand the exhibition focuses on the work
3: of seven practitioners. It focuses on seven practitioners because we're actually, for those that have been to the art centre, we work with a very itty- bitty space, so any more than seven would have been a challenge. But one of the interesting things is I think those artists exhibit uh, commonalities in the way that they work, both visually and the way that they um, conceive their performance art.
1: Talk to us then about the the, the commonalities that link these artists. It's it's always difficult to talk about an
3: exhibition um, and try and give you a visual um, uh, image in your mind, but I'll endeavour to do that. Uh, one of the things that I've endeavoured to do in the show is to make it experiential. I think that exhibitions are there to be visited and to spend time within them. So whereas you don't get the performance, you actually have time within an ex- exhibition to engage with the work that's in there. And so... When you have that, you will see themes that fall through the exhibition to deal with politics, um, to deal with the environment, to deal with economic issues in respective countries. But what you see is hopefully in the visuals and the way they address or different artists address this, you can see that we're all addressing similar things. And I hope that the issues that they're dealing with actually resonate with our Melbourne Australian audiences as well.
1: Now... Some of the regimes across Asia, for example, are not necessarily that fond of outspoken uh, political statements and political events, Um, whether we think of China and uh, its human rights abuses, for example, and by no means am I saying that uh, Australia is also not complicit in human rights abuses, but... There has been, there is a much stronger push down from above uh, in some countries, uh, Myanmar, for example, uh, uh, when political art is made versus political art in Australia. Talk to us about how artists are responding to the political climates of the countries in which they're working and how you've represented those uh, political ideas within the exhibition.
3: Now that's the challenge, I can tell you. Um, but, I, but it is interesting, and I, one of the reasons I actually picked the title, Political Acts, was to draw visitors' attention to the idea because I think sometimes you could walk into the show with a different title and you wouldn't necessarily recognise that some of these works are political. And I think that's, in answer to your question, is these artists in some way veil what they produce and so that there are a number or a multiplicity of readings that you can actually um, take away or that can be read into the particular works. So the works function in a wider context, may say things specific that the artist wishes to say but can also be read differently. So it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a fine balancing act in the way that I think artists are able to work through those um, those structures in their home countries and then present work as well.
1: Now obviously trying to convey to listeners some of the the imagery or the style of the work is a challenge on radio I was hoping that uh, there was a an online gallery that I could direct people (laughs) towards so that they could see at least some of the images, but, uh, that's not going to be as easy, but I mean, for example, photography, video, um, there's some striking imagery of, um, of liquid interacting with bodies, for example, uh, and that 's something that we 're seeing echoed in a couple of the words, whether it be yellow paint splashing or what looks like milk pouring over a body what do these kind of images what 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 are they representing what uh, How are they using their construction to convey a political message
3: okay it 's one of the key themes which people will see is color because color can make a number of symbolic statements. And as you mentioned, yellow is one of the colours. There's also black is a very uh, symbolic colour, whether it's mourning or um, a range of issues that can be related. Uh, White is also clear in the show and red. And obviously red has a resonance to do with uh, communism or histories to do with that. So within the show, colour becomes very symbolic of of metaphor and political statement and one of the other things as you mentioned someone splashing paint on them or or um, dropping with a bucket of sand or the white which was rubber is these artists because of the, um, the countries they uh, are in and perhaps don't have the infrastructure arts infrastructure we have a lot of the acts are very simple they're very direct and how they capture them are through photography so another artist just puts sticky dots on his body and then has photographed it or used a a stamp to um, increasingly uh, cover his body. So they're very simple, but they're very strong and they're really trying to make a statement about uh, their, their, their situation, but they're actually very visually strong, which I think you know as a curator for an exhibition, and for visitors coming in that's what I want to get them to think about.
1: now, some visitors may be expecting to see performance art happening live in the exhibition rather than to see the the after effect, the documentation of work um, was, that something, was that ever discussed at any stage that you were that trying to stage a series of live works within the gallery at art center melbourne
3: I'll, I'll answer it two things is because Asia Tope is such a big Festival. there were other venues where parts of performance art or other people came out to do it. So I actually was conscious of the um, the situation that there were other um, venues where perhaps live performance art could be seen as part of Asia Topa. What we did do, we did have Dadang Christanto, who was one of the artists who is born in Indonesia but now lives here in Australia. Um, he did come here to... Um, have a performance which was a a short toothbrushing performance in the space in front of an installation that he created specifically for the exhibition. And the reason he did this is so that we could film it as well. So now we have the film of the performance that he created specifically for Political Acts, the exhibition, and that is now playing in the show. So it's the whole cycle of performance in the space the documentation and the presentation to the audiences which is in an exhibition which lasts for 12 12 weeks um is, is is a really great outcome
1: for us we're talking about the exhibition political acts pioneers of performance art in southeast asia which is on now at art center melbourne it's in the the main gallery on the the ground floor of the theatres building underneath the spire at Arts Centre Melbourne, if you aren't sure which building I'm talking about. It's on until the 21st of May, and it's presented as part of Asia Topa, the Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, which is uh, an attempt, uh, an initiative to represent the diversity of contemporary performance uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. Often when we see work from Asia, we see heritage work, we see traditional work. So it's fascinating for me to see this kind of deep engagement with the contemporary for you as a as a curator Stephen what are you hoping that Asia Topa will achieve as long-term goals
3: well in my particular uh field as a curator the most important thing for me was to build those connections one with the artists and so in some ways that's a start of a much more collaborative process into the future so when you look at the next triennial um, we will have been able to build connections through these artists with other artists and so it'll become hopefully something where we are really having an exchange of ideas uh, and work and so really it's always a testing ground. Political acts has been a testing ground really to build much stronger connections um, with Southeast Asia and with artists and communities for the future
1: now obviously you're a busy man with uh, and you can't spend all your time in the gallery looking at people's responses but what have the audiences been like because I know that one of the things Asia topa wants to do is to diversify the audience that come into venues like Art Center Melbourne uh, that come into uh, the malt house and so forth um, are you seeing a more a, a more culturally diverse audience uh, attending the exhibition or is it still predominantly white fellas
3: to be honest it's really good we've been really positive in particularly the exhibition because as i said before one of the aims is to get people to stay and to spend time and so that anecdotal when you see a person coming in and spending you know a good hour working walking through and looking and perhaps a tourist as well and That is really encouraging because it means that they're engaging with the works and actually starting to consider the multiplicity of readings that they are within each of the works that are presented. So I, again, encourage anyone to to have a look and to spend time because that's how works of art engage, you know, a viewer.
1: We've been talking to curator Stephen Tonkin about the exhibition Political Acts, Pioneers of Performance Art in Southeast Asia, on now until the 21st of May at Art Centre Melbourne in the main gallery underneath the spire of the theatre's building. For more info, you can go to asiatopa.com.au. Stephen, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. My next guests have joined me in the studio to talk about John, currently uh, being staged by the Melbourne Theatre Company uh, in the Fairfax studio at Arts Centre Melbourne. I'm joined by director Sarah Goods and actor Ursula Mills. Welcome to Triple R, the two of you. Hello. Hello. So it's uh, good to have you both in because it's uh, your relatively new arrivals in Melbourne, uh, both being part of the Sydney kind of theatre scene. So I, before we begin talking about John itself as a play, I just wanted to talk to you about cultural differences between theatre making in Melbourne and Sydney. What what uh, differences have you both observed in this process working at the MTC?
0: Um, not... Not a whole lot, I guess, because
4: you're from Sydney, Sarah, and um, yes. yes, and, then, and um, Elizabeth is also from. Elizabeth Sydney? Gatsby's the designer, and um, I worked with her in Sydney um, quite a bit at the Sydney Theatre Company. So I moved down in October. So I've been here for a little bit longer than you. And um, I, I went to VCA down here a long time ago. <laughs> and um, uh, Melbourne's a great place. I mean, one of the things I keep talking to people about is that it's just time. This just seems to be a little bit more time down here. For some reason, I've been trying to figure out what that is. And um, and people sort of spend more time with each other. I don't know what that no, is. No, I think that's, that's definitely true. And I don't know what it is either, but it just seems not supportive, but just a bit more... Community-orientated, I think. And people will go over to each other's houses and invite you over. And I think in Sydney everyone's so environmentally (coughs) orientated, you know, um, that the focus tends to be more on places rather than people. Whereas here I feel like the focus is much more on people. It's wonderful. Mm.
1: And what about the the difference between working with the STC and working with the MTC, for example?
4: Well, they're both very different companies, but they're both sort of the state theatre companies for each state. And... um, and there's there's lots of different Sydney sort of out on that wharf under the um under the bridge so it's sort of surrounded by water and it just sort of glistens <laughs> <laughs> like because of the water you know the sun reflects off the water and but it is a bit isolated whereas the thing about MTC is that you know Malt is across the road VCA is there it's much more sort of and it's in the city you know right in the heart of the city um so i think sort of that has a bit of a difference to it as as well and um yeah
1: let's talk about the play john uh which has been getting great reviews i haven't yet had a chance to see it unfortunately because i've been jaunting off around the countryside going to international arts festivals on the other side of the country uh so i missed your opening night for which i apologize but uh um I might get, Ursula, I might get you to tell us a little bit about the play.
0: I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. (laughs) I think that's been the problem when people ask, so what's the play about? And I think... um, Rather than
1: telling what what it's about, tell us about the tone. What will will people feel from this work rather than telling us about what it's about in inverted commas?
0: Well, I mean, that's that's another thing. Annie Baker has a way of writing something where people will hopefully walk out feeling different different things and and who they empathize with with the characters that you know on, on stage and their storylines and you sort of I don't know you it's it's hard to it's, it's very of,
4: it's very hard to, sort of pin to articulate. Down and, and that's part of its beauty as well um but essentially she's written a story about a couple um and it's got these great sort of remnants of a, a great ghost story you know it's a, a young couple who are from brooklyn They've been visiting her parents in Ohio. On their way back to Brooklyn, they decide to stop at Gettysburg because the guy used to be obsessed with the Civil War, and they want to do. He wants to do some tours there. Now they're in the death spin days of their relationship. Um, They nearly broke up a few weeks ago. They've both been under a lot of pressure. She really wants to make it work. He's eaten up by doubts and fears about what's going on. And they arrive late one night at Mertis's B&B in Gettysburg. And Gettysburg, of course, is the site of um, one of the biggest battles of the Civil War. And so, again, Annie Baker has this incredible ability of layering or juxtaposing these kind of very epic stories with these very domestic stories. So at the side of a place where, you know, 45,000 men died in a three-day battle in Gettysburg, you have this very domestic (laughs) battle, but no less in its stakes and its emotional kind of pull playing out and of course Murtis is um, very played by the beautiful Helen Morse who um, I just think that's one of the things I'm loving about being in Melbourne is the actors in Sydney are great too but there's an an incredible um, community of actors down here and um and Helen is just remarkable and she she um, uh, runs this B&B, she has a husband George who we never meet, is George real or is he not, we don't know and she has a blind friend um, Genevieve who is in her 80s and played by the incredible Melita Jurisic and they um, have these wonderful quality otherworldly quality to them and Murtis on one level is very very hospitable, blisteringly hospitable and then another side to her is this sort of Otherworldly angel-like character, um, and so what she's constantly doing as she's um, sort of setting this this piece up is trying to keep it's like holding something up to the light and it refracting in lots of different ways she doesn't ever want it to be one thing she wants the possibility of multiple things to be alive at each point.
1: One of those potential multiple readings I wonder um, and Ursula I'll get you to ask uh, to answer this one, is one of those multiple readings an element of the ghost story of the the southern Gothic? Uh, Are there hints that the doubt and fear that um, uh, Elias is having for example, that there is more to fear than just the disintegration of a relationship?
0: Um, it's definitely in there. And I think that's with the, um, you know, the microcosm of of the ordinary and the macrocosm of things that might just be happening around. And I, that ghost story is, I love that it enters that realm of the ordinary, that you could be in your kitchen cooking something and then all of a sudden some taps go off and you're like, well, what's that? So it's not like a, a ghost story set in Victorian times, but it's a very real present-day sort of ghost story.
1: Which is something that um, the American horror writer H.P. Lovecraft spoke about um, at length, stripping away the gothic trappings of the supernatural. So instead of crumbling castles and 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 vampires, you would set things in isolated farmhouses or in run-down tenement apartment buildings, juxtaposing the real and the supernatural uh, then create this delicious, dangerous friction.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and because it's set in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, with such, like, a traumatic history and past and whether or not that still haunts
4: that area as well. Did you know that she reads from H.P. Lovecraft in the play?
1: I had heard a reference a <laughs> Lovecraftian yeah, know, that. I've done my research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man,
4: you're good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but... Because one of the, Lovecraft as a writer is somebody who is now uh, as much joked about um, as celebrated because of his kind of Baroque-heavy, uh, adjective-laden uh, writing style. Tell us about the writing style of the play itself, because this is a, a playwright at the top of her game and who I believe wrote the play partially in response to criticism of her previous play, a previous play, The Flick, which is three hours, and people were like, oh, it's too wordy and it's too long. And she was like, you thought that was long? Right, I'll show you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, she has this very um, – she knows exactly what she's doing and apparently she reads and researches for a year. She's a, like a bowerbird and she collects all these ideas and then after a year of reading and research Researching rights, rights of play, and that's very evident in this piece. But she's very, she she's very good at doing what she does, and she's having a very active relationship or conversation with the theatre audience. And that is, you're coming to the theatre. The theatre is a temporal medium. You walk in the door, you sit with a group of people you've never met before, and the time starts, and it goes, and then it ends. And so, um, you know, this is her seventh. Um, you know, major, major theatrical work and in all of them she she is stretching time and what she does is, and she does it in this play too, in the second scene, <coughs> um, Ursula's character Jenny comes downstairs, can't find a plug for the heater because she's cold and it's a good sort of five, eight minutes of silence Um, of her trying to find the plug trying to get warm but what she's actually doing is she's slowing everyone's internal rhythms down she's saying to them this is how time is going to move in this piece and it's going to be slow and it's about carefully observed action human action playing out in front of you and um you know you go with it i mean it's it's really clever because then you're listening very, very closely and you're watching very, very closely.
1: What kind of pressures does that put on you as an actor then, Ursula, if if there are these, if the play is playing with time, that must surely make you as an actor so much more, what, aware, anxious about your craft of, of delivering the, the pace, for example, of not wanting to work against that tension that the playwright is creating.
0: Yeah, I guess it's almost counterintuitive now as an actor because we're, we're taught to you know pacey pacey pick up the cues make sure you know all of the those things that you you just want to keep driving forward with the play but I think with this one it's it's allowing yourself to then settle in to that world as well and just um making everything in real time and so there, there is that anxiety of thinking that the audience is going to get bored or they're just going to tune out because they're not being stimulated that way. But if all the actions that, you know, that, 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 that doesn't have verbal sort of communication will still communicate something very active still. And all those actions are very familiar, you know, when you are looking for a plug or you are trying to get comfortable and the pillows aren't working and all of that. And you're hoping that people sort of find that connection as well.
1: If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the current MTC production, John, which is on in the Fairfax studio at Arts Centre Melbourne until the 25th of March. And my guests are director Sarah Goods and actor Ursula Mills. Sarah, uh, for you as the director of this piece, given that we were saying off air that it's quite a it's a large piece. It's a a long work. There are two intervals. Uh, Is that challenging audiences? Are you seeing... um, I don't know, are a younger audience coming to see this because they've got more time? Are older audiences, conversely, coming to see it because they're used to a slower pace of theatre?
4: Well, it's very interesting... because it's it's one of those things. It's exactly what Ursula was saying. It's it's you have to. We've had lots of conversations about doing the opposite of going faster, louder, quicker. You know the usual things that you're saying as a director as as you're getting to the opening night, and it was about commitment to the moments, and commitment to the things, and commitment to the the rhythms of which she's written. And I think what's really interesting is she's actually quite radical. Um, in what she's doing and what she's challenging um, it within the piece. So it is a little bit like a, young, a, a play for young people dressed up as a play for old people. I mean, when you look at it, it's this old B&B and it's this very, very intricate, detailed naturalism. But what she's actually doing inside it is is, is kind of radical and, and very different and I think younger audiences are really enjoying being challenged by that and maybe some older audiences. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to know. And one of the things is that all, it's like I've said to these guys a lot, is that all you can do is just be totally committed to being inside this world. It's not like you're having this kind of relationship with the audience like you do in comedy or or sort of more contemporary mm. pieces. Um, you've actually just got to really commit to being in that world because so much of what she's doing in this play too is casting spells. The play is very much about spells and the spells that if you fall in love with someone and you're in a bad relationship you're kind of in the spell of them for a long time until it breaks and um, and she sort of explores that on a sort of metaphorical level as well as a very real level and because it spells then it's about the atmosphere. And so sometimes we're hearing things in another room and is it there or is it not there? But essentially everyone in the space or, you know, the performers in the space become very alert to it and then it suddenly disappears again.
1: Sounds like the kind of play with an atmosphere that could be easily ruined by somebody forgetting to turn their phone off in the audience. Oh, we've
4: had had a few actually. Even worse alarms. Yeah. (laughs) And the person was so embarrassed that they refused to turn it off. And it was on a preview, and um, and Brett said to me afterwards, there was a weird sound effect going in the last scene there, see What was that? And I said that was someone's phone alarm. Uh, <laughs>
1: maddening. So a reminder: if you're going to see John at Arts Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax Studio, turn your bloody phone off at both intervals.
4: Yeah.
1: Oh, rather after both intervals. That's the problem. People go to interval, they check their phone, they check their messages, and then they forgot to, forget to turn it off when they go back in. So don't do that. Uh, John, uh, the MTC production on now until the 25th of March, Fairfax Studio at Arts Centre Melbourne. You can get tickets through mtc.com.au or by picking up your phone and calling 8688 0800. Sarah and Ursula, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thank you you so
0: much. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.